0: I'm going to be in Luke chapter 8 this morning, um, and we're actually going to finish out chapter 8. We'll, do, we'll, we'll work through verses 40, uh, goodness, 46 through, no, golly, my mind, where am I at? 36 through, where am I? You guys are in for a treat. So, please do. Please do. I have suddenly... Yes, thank you very much. That's page 866 of the Bible in the chair in front of you. You're welcome to follow along on the UVersion Live event. Billy told me before I got up here, there's a lot of people watching you, and now the pressure is just overwhelming. <laughs> so, uh, no, I'll just play it. I don't know. I was actually thinking about something else. I didn't tell this to the first service, uh, but would like to, to you to know. I, I would like for you guys to just mark your calendar and make a priority to be here on November 6th. And that whole weekend, potentially, uh, we're going to do some gospel and race stuff. If you think that racism is not an issue in our little neck of the woods, uh, you're you're mistaken. There's a real big problem in our country, and it's become very obvious. And it's a gospel issue. And we have something to speak about. We have something to say. Uh, and, and so um, I've been working. Many of you know Xavier and Lauren. Xavier's going to come. He's got some some stuff that he's Worked on and, and shared, and it's, it's it's good stuff. And so I want you guys to be able to hear it. Um, but bigger than that, I'm trying to make some connections in our city with some with some leaders, with some people who can speak to this and just challenge and encourage us. Not from just a social standpoint, but from a gospel perspective. And so I would encourage you to make a point November 6th, We're going to take a break from Luke, um, and, and I want you to know about. It. I want you to be. I want you to. I want you to be here. And there's going to be an announcement that goes out this week. But I want you to know. Uh, your the, the heart of your pastors about this issue and so um, anyway uh, so that and then November 20th we have a guy that's going to be going to Japan that's coming on November 20th his name is Patrick Boyd and he is coming Boyle he's coming to Patrick Boyle he's coming to preach and to just share what he's going to be doing in Japan and uh, would love for you guys to make a point of being here for that so just mark those things they're out a little bit but but, but just begin to be ready and prepared for them so today, we're Luke chapter 8. We're going to be actually closing out chapter 8 today. This puts us a third of the way through the book of Luke. So it's taken us about 40 sermons, just around 40 sermons, to get through this book, through, through the end of this uh, chapter 8. That doesn't mean we'll go 120, but I do think we'll go about 105. should finish out sometime in the year 2020 or so. Uh no, not really. It, it should finish out um, probably about uh, in, in just a just over a year or so, and so it was going to be about 100 sermons all told. But my hope is, in mentioning that, is that you recognize that we have been able to see some pretty amazing things through this gospel record, and that taking our time, we haven't lost sight of the big picture that God is is demonstrating through Luke, that we can trust in our Savior, Jesus Christ, but there is real intimate details that speak to our life every day, and if the feedback I have been given and receiving through this through this gospel account has anything to say about it? It is speaking to you, to people in the church, and has been beneficial. And so, I just encourage you to continue to to just press in with me into this gospel as we continue to work through. But most recently, in our study in Luke chapter eight, we have uh, been seeing God's power on display. In fact, we're seeing something pretty cool in the midst of Luke chapter eight. And I told you this a couple of weeks ago in the parable on the soil, parable of the soils. I we're seeing something that's pretty special pretty pretty uh pretty amazing we're seeing this sovereign power of god at work in the world i mean he is doing things that are shocking to us that are beyond our imagination really just to grasp some of the things that he's Doing, but, but alongside his power, we're seeing this beautiful tension that's really on about every page of scripture that's rep- represented all the way through from start to finish. God's sovereign power to rule and to reign and to affect change in the world, but mankind's responsibility for a proper response and a proper uh, life under God's sovereign power. Power. We're seeing this tension demonstrated, and, and, and beautifully, if, if, I, if, if I could just say it that way, I mean, it's this beautiful picture of God at work and people responding. I mean, to this point, or just over the last two weeks, we've seen, seen Jesus' power to command storms. Like, he told the wind to quit blowing and the waves to quit washing. I mean, he told them to be still, and the, and the sea was calm, and the wind quit blowing. It obeyed him. It's amazing. I mean, it's shocking. And then we see him have the power to cast out demons, our most evil foe, the the greatest enemy we face. This outside of ourselves is the the evil forces of darkness, Satan and all the demons, and this man who is not just possessed by one demon, but many demons. And Jesus walks onto the beach, and and, and the demons fall before him in submission. A lion, maybe, but a lion on the leash, nonetheless, they have no power in front of Christ. It's amazing. It's, 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 it's awe. It, it, it fills me with awe. It inspires us. Today we're going to see Jesus by His divine power, heal disease, cure or, or cleanse, I'm sorry, cleanse impurity and defeat death. We're going to see him do things, that, that witness him do things by his power that should just, uh, I mean, just cause us to, to celebrate, cause us to be in awe. But the question is, how will we respond? Like how will the people that we're going to see today, as he interacts in the world, how, how are they going to respond? How are we going to respond? The truth is, is that Luke has been drawing out this response of, of fear, We've seen it the last two weeks. We're going to see it again today demonstrated in the text. He's been highlighting this response of fear. The disciples were afraid when the storm was raging. They were scared. They thought they were going to die. And in desperation, they go to Jesus and they wake him up. We're going to die. We're going to die. And Jesus does what he does. And, and when, the, when, when the seas go calm, when the seas get still... They're afraid, but they're no longer afraid of the storm. They're afraid of their Savior. They're afraid of Jesus. It says they were afraid and they marveled this fear that filled them because Jesus is more powerful than the storm. So they no longer feared the storm. They feared the Christ. But they marveled that fear moved to worship and that worship led to greater faith. They believed in Him more fully. They saw His power more completely and they were able to walk with Him more intimately. And then these demons. As Jesus steps out on the uh, out on the beach, and these demons fall before him in submission. And he tells them, "Get out of the man." And he gives them permission. they he gives him permission to go into these pigs, and these pigs—two thousand of them—run off into the sea, and they die. And I'm imagining they, they floated to the bottom, and it was hit, and it was done. And the people—they come out. The people who own these pigs, and instead of celebrating the man who's been healed, says they're afraid. They're afraid, but they're not afraid of what Jesus, they're not afraid of Jesus' power in the sense that it moves them to worship. They're afraid of Jesus' power and what it might cost them, what else they might lose in the world, what it might cause them to give up further. What what else could he take away from us? And so rather than celebrating in fear of, of of the restoration that he brings, they reject him in fear because they really want their pigs back. They really want what they lost back. They're afraid more of what they might lose than afraid of what Jesus might do for them. What happens when he heals people of their diseases and what happens when he brings people back from the dead? How do people respond? How will we respond? You see, we're witnessing this now. We're we're, kind of like the disciples in that moment. I didn't bring this out last week. As the the disciples were watching and Jesus interacting with this demon-possessed man, we don't ever catch a glimpse of what the disciples are doing. They're just witnessing it. In fact, we don't really know how they responded, except that when the people said, go away from us, they got in the boat and they went with Jesus. This man who had shown them that they could fear him and trust him. They went with Jesus. How will we respond? It's really a question we're going to press through over and over. I'm going to put to you time and again through this message. And then at the end, I'm going to ask you, how do you respond? Let's just read the passage. We'll we'll start in Luke chapter 8, verse 40. We'll read through verse 43. We'll make it through to the end of the chapter by By the end of this message, let's see what the word says. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man, Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went... The people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. We're going to stop right there, kind of set the stage, kind of step into this so that we can really witness what Jesus does. Jesus and his disciples, they had gone across the sea. He delivers them through the storm along the way. He lands on the, on the other beach in, uh, in, in the Gerasenes. He gets out. He's welcomed by, you know, the welcome wagon of that place was the demon-possessed man. He comes down to the beach and finds them. And Jesus de- delivers the man, heals the man, restores his image in the man. And then he's sent away, and he climbs back into the boat with his disciples, and they come back across, at least with our understanding, nothing else happened on that trip until they get to the other side, and they're back in Galilee, and he climbs out on the boat, and here's this whole crowd of people that have been sitting there waiting for him. They've just been sitting there waiting for Jesus to show back up. I don't know what they wanted from him. I don't know what their purpose, I'm I'm certain it wasn't completely... Pure, I'm certainly, it wasn't just all about worshiping him and we just want to be near Jesus. I'm sure that there was pieces of that, that that were all about what Jesus can do for us. But they're sitting there waiting. And there's so many people that when he steps off, that the crowds are pressing in and they're, they're rubbing up and bumping up, and it's hard for him to get anywhere. And in the midst of that crowd is this man named Jairus, and Jairus runs down to him. I'm, I'm assuming, that because he's a leader in the synagogue, that, that people were helping Jairus get to Jesus. And he shows up and he falls on his knees before him. He pleads with Jesus. You see the parallel? The demon-possessed man falls on his knees before Jesus. Jairus falls on his knees before Jesus and pleads. And I hope you sense the desperation. I hope you sense this man full of desperation and despair. And at his end, he's unable to do anything to change his circumstance. He's unable to make a difference in this this situation. He is desperate. And we know he's desperate because he's a, a leader in a synagogue. He's one of the Jewish leaders. And you know who he's going to? He's going to the very man that the Jewish leaders had already begun to write off. They'd already begun to reject him. They'd already begun to say that he's a heretic, that he has no place in the synagogue, that he has no place in our tradition. This man is not the Messiah. We don't need to listen to this man. In just a few pages, just a few verses, we're going to come to a place where Jesus is later, by the Jewish leaders, later said, hey, you're doing all your work by the power of the devil. This is a man who we already know that the synagogue leaders, the other Jewish leaders, would look at Jairus and say, what are you doing going to him? What are you thinking going to this man who does work by the devil? He's desperate. He doesn't care what they think. In fact, he's so desperate that he loses all desire to maintain his social standing. And this man that's prestigious, this man who stands and commands others to do things, this man who leads out, falls on his knees and begs. And you can just imagine that he's there begging, tears flowing, completely powerless. Do you sense his desperation? He's got nothing he can do. And Why is he so desperate? His only daughter, maybe his only child. We know it's his only daughter. She's 12 years old. Just be entering into our youth group. 12 years old. She's dying. Who would want that? She doesn't even have to be our kid to feel the weight of that, right? But if she's your kid, you feel the desperation in that. You feel the powerlessness in that. Come to my house. You've got to help me. I'm out of options. I can't do anything else. I need your help. And and, and this moment, this beautiful moment when Jesus looks at him. Rather than send him away and say, hey, all you Jewish leaders have rejected me. All of you people have decided you don't want me. Go away from me. Jesus says, all right, brother, let's go. Let's go. And so they head to his house. They leave the beach and they're headed to his house. And along the way, along the way, there's this woman. This woman who's desperate. Are you catching a theme? See, the reality is there's a theme and a thread that's been running through all of these stories that ties them all together. They're all absolutely desperate. The disciples in the boat, as the the seas are raging and the the boat is filling with water, the sails are tearing and they're being swept away. They're they're desperate. Wake up, Jesus. We're going to die. We're perishing. Wake up. In desperation, they plead with Jesus. This man, this demon-possessed man, has no idea even fully, or at least he can't express it out loud because he doesn't have control of his own faculties. He can't, he can't voice his desperation. But don't you see and understand how desperate he was? You can only imagine the voice screaming within his own mind, deliver me, free me, help me. Jairus desperate because his daughter is dying and this woman, this woman desperate because she's been suffering with this issue of bleeding. We don't know exactly what it was. A lot of of commentators talk about like a a uterine hemorrhage, like something within her uterus is just, just bleeding. For as long as that little girl had been alive, 12 years, this woman had been Bleeding. And Mark tells us, as he records this, Luke doesn't, maybe because he's a doctor, he doesn't want to just shame the whole profession. But but Mark lets us know, not only has she spent all her money on the doctors, but she has suffered much under their care. And not only is she not getting better, she is getting worse. Twelve years suffering. And She is desperate. If I could just touch the hem of his robe... If I could just reach out and touch him, I don't even need him to look at me. I don't even need him to see me. I don't need him to say anything to me. If I could just touch him, I know I'd be healed. Do you sense her desperation? The truth is the desperation that ties these stories together is the same desperation that ties us all together, right? It's hard to think about when the sun's shining like it is outside right now, when it's nice and pretty and it's a day that you can be out enjoying the creation and everything's happy and easy. It's easy to misplace or displace, I'm sorry, dis- displace the desperation. But it's just a veil. It's all just an illusion. This see, so the reality is, is we don't have the control that we'd like to imagine we have over the circumstances that are coming. We don't have the power to affect the change that we would like to affect in the world. In fact, all of our awareness, all of our ability to see all of the problems lead us to this place of frustration and desperation because we simply can't do anything about it. So we put on blinders and we hide in entertainment and cover it up with moments away, days of rest and unplugging from the world. But we're never that far away from a circumstance that would remind us of our desperation. Life is fragile. And we are much more frail than we like to admit. And I'm telling you, this is from a guy that's got big shoulders and thinks I can handle a lot of things. But I imagine, I imagine that those people that faced Hurricane Matthew this week, in fact, I've talked to one this morning that recognizes the power of that storm. I imagine that they understood the desperation that came and the sense of powerlessness that they felt. Such a powerful storm that the governor of Florida gets on television and tells his people, you have no excuse. This storm will kill you. Leave. He implores people to get out of its way. This morning when I looked, the last I saw was 15 people had found that statement to be true. The storm will kill you. We're still too early to know the, the, the amount of damage and the number of injuries that, that are going to be uh, that, that are gonna come out of this. We we're still too early. But you can be certain, you can be certain they know the sense and the feel of that desperate day. I have a friend good friends with in high school. He now lives in California and Just recently, just over a month ago, his son and a friend were riding bikes, going somewhere and hanging out. I'm not sure where they were going. They were on the sidewalk and they separated the sidewalk so that there were some pedestrians could, could stay on the sidewalk. And one went one way and the other. The son, Caleb, pulled out into the street. And when he did, he pulled out into front of a truck. This 14-year-old boy was killed. And I know that they feel the weight and the frailty and the desperation. And I know that they're in the midst of this turmoil and storm. And I know they feel it. And part of the reason I know they feel it is just just before that, just weeks before that, the mom had found found out that she was able to donate her kidney to her son. You see, Caleb, not only was he killed by a, a truck... But he, his kidneys had been failing. and If he didn't get a kidney transplant, he was going to die. And his mom had determined they'd, they'd found out, well, you can donate. So they're a month away, a month away. Tell me that we don't live in a world of desperation. We are powerless to affect the change that we'd like to affect. We have no control over the things that we'd like to control. It's easy for us to duck our heads. It's easy for us to put our blinders on and put our head in the sand. It's easy for us to to say, well, that's not my kid. It's not my family. It's not my home. Not my job. Everything's good for me. There's not one of us that are promised another second, another moment even sitting in this room right now, listening to the word of God preached. Anything could happen. Just like that. No one's expecting it. No one's looking at it. No one's planning for it. It's not just the circumstances we live in today that are this way it's not the only thing the the, the world around us, the evil around us is not the only thing killing us our bodies they are not serving us the way God designed them to serve us I don't know if you all know or not but recently um, my dad was (laughs) My dad was diagnosed with cancer. It's inoperable. They're uncertain what the treatment's going to do. Um, the way it was told to be t- told to me <laughs> was that they're just seeking to control it. In a way, I'm glad my family is going to face this because they are going to see the frailty of life and be put in a place of desperation. But I know it's not going to be easy. The truth is, we may not all face a disease like cancer. But everyone who is born dies. Unless God intervenes and God stops it from happening, everyone that is born will die. There's a couple of times in history in the scripture that we know that people were taken. And they didn't face death. And we know that there's a time coming when those who are living will be caught up in the clouds and brought to be with Jesus and they will not die. But unless God intervenes, everyone that is born dies. Do you feel the sense of desperation that these people faced? Do you recognize the situation in which we exist? Have you been close enough? Do we need to go further to pull the veil back far enough that we can remove the illusion and answer the reality and stand in the presence of of the truth that we are frail and every day we face death? brothers and sisters, as heavy as this is and as difficult as it is to hear. We don't face that as a people with no hope. You see, Jesus stepped into the middle of this desperation. That's the beauty of the rest of these stories is that the desperation was answered because in their desperation, they did something. They pursued him. They ran after him. See, Jesus, as he, as he faces disaster, demons, disease, and death, he is greater he is more powerful. He is able to put them aside and undo the damage. So please, as we, as we face this weight, let's not stay there. Let's not live there. Let's not be overwhelmed by it. Let's pursue our our Savior. Let's like the disciples in the midst of the storm and like the demon-possessed man and like Jairus and this woman who was bleeding, let's run after our Savior. No matter what the cost, no matter what's ahead of us, no matter what it might require of us, let's in our responsibility chase after our Savior. Because we don't have to face these things as a people with no hope. We don't have to face these things as if they'll undo us and destroy us. We live in a world full of despair. But we have the answer. And he came and he did these things. Let's see what he does. Continue reading. We'll just pick it back up in verse 43. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her life, or all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. You see his power. And Jesus said, who is it that touched me When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she (coughs) she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. <laughs> There's two things I want you to see from this passage. Two ways in which Jesus meets us in the midst of desperation. Jesus, the man who crowds pressed in on, is the God whose power conquers disease. You see, he's a man that the crowds were pressing in on. He's a man that was, in, he was present with them. He's the man that, that was being pushed in, and jockeyed around by the crowd. He's the man that she pursued in the midst of the crowd. But he's the God whose power healed her. He's the God who made a difference. No, no one, no physician, not all of the technological advances that they had at that time, not all the understanding of the human, human body at that time could take care of this issue. Nothing could fix her. And she was only getting worse until Jesus' power healed her. We don't know exactly what her condition was, but we know she'd been suffering for a long time. And in desperation, she reaches out. If I could just touch him. And I can imagine that the frustration and the desperation is building as she presses into this crowd. How hard was it for her to get to him? How difficult was it for her to to, to reach out and, and touch him? And it's funny, in the middle of that, it's, Funny to me, maybe ironic is probably a better word, Peter, Peter in the midst of all this, Jesus is like, hey, who touched me? Peter playing the role of Captain Obvious, he's like, hey, really what you ought to be asking is who didn't touch you, right? The crowd is pressing. crowd is pressing. And we could probably learn a lesson from that. There's a reality that Maybe some of us speak too quick and we don't fully understand the perspective of Christ and we think of it simply from our own view. Maybe sometimes we ought to stop and listen to Jesus a little bit because he knows things we don't know and he sees things we don't see and he has an experience that we need to understand. He says, no, 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 Peter. Listen. Listen, somebody touched me. I love what Augustine says at this place, at this point, as he talks about this moment. Augustine says that Flesh presses, faith touches. Certainly there were people bumping into Christ, rubbing elbows, pushing against him because of the crowd behind him. Probably stumbling over one another's feet, probably difficult to walk because the press of the crowd was so tight. But this one woman wasn't just there to rub up against Jesus, wasn't just there to get proximity to Jesus. She believed and in her faith she knew if I could just touch him. And when she did, immediately, as quick as disaster can come, immediately she was healed and her bleeding stopped. You see, Jesus, by his power, the God's power in Christ, he conquers disease. But he did more than heal her of her bleeding. He did more than just make her well physically. The reality is because she was bleeding, She was impure. She was unclean. The truth is that she was separated, segregated, isolated, if you will, from the the core of Jewish life. Everything that happened in the synagogue, all the worship that took place, all the the ritual and the ceremony and everything that happened in Jewish life happened around the, 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 the things that happened in synagogue and at temple. And she was totally cut off. The law would not allow her anywhere near it. Because of her bleeding, she was unclean. She was impure. She was cut off from her society. But it wasn't just her society. It was from personal relationship. If anyone touched her, imagine. How many many people touched you today? As you shook hands, as you hugged, and maybe even as you're sitting next to someone with your arm around them now. Imagine 12 years of no physical Touch. If she was married and she had a husband, he couldn't touch her without himself becoming unclean. If she had children, she couldn't hug them, she couldn't tuck them in because of her physical issue, lest she make them unclean. See, this is the second thing I want you to see from this. He didn't just heal her, he cleansed her. Jesus, the man who could be touched. Is the God whose power cleanses impurity. See, where everybody else, everybody else, every, everyone else that she would touch, everyone else that would touch her, they would become unclean and they would be cut off. They would be isolated until they went through a process of cleansing in a period of time. But Jesus is different. Jesus is no mere man. He's the God who cleanses impurity. See, when she touched him rather than her impurity flowing towards him, his power flowed towards her. His power made her clean rather than her uncleanness making him filthy. It it, it went the other way. Everything, Everything with Jesus is reversed because his power is so great. He doesn't become unclean, he makes us clean. And the same is true for every one of us. There is no sin too great, no depravity too deep, no distance too far. You come to Jesus. He doesn't get dirty because of you. He makes you clean. This is what he did for her. And had what happened next not happened, she would know, and Jesus would know, and that would be it. But he cared too much for her to let her sit in silence and let her fade away into the crowd. And he stops. Somebody touched me. Who touched me? And he would not go any further until she came out. Knowing that she was found out. Knowing that she wasn't hidden. She comes out. And she falls at his feet. Again, this picture of his power. And the response of people. And her coming. And it says she came trembling. Afraid. Afraid of what this meant. Afraid of what might come. Trembling. And she tells the story. She tells the story of how she's pushed through this crowd and touched many people and done what's wrong in the sight of society at that time. It was socially unacceptable. But in her desperation, she had no other choice. And she tells the story of her 12 years of bleeding and tells her story of desperation and tells her story of healing. And in the midst of that, he looks at her, and he doesn't condemn her, and he doesn't cast her out, and he doesn't send her away disappointed. He looks at her, and he says something. It's the only time it's recorded in Scripture this way. The only time we know he used this word, and he says, daughter. You see, Jesus brought her out. He called her out. He asked her to step out and make this confession, not because he was going after her, not because, because he was going to discipline or punish her, because he, because he longed to defend her and restore her. I mean, she was now being brought into an intimate relationship. She's not just some woman that touched him in the crowd, she's daughter. It's not just some woman that was healed of her disease, but she has been made Clean And now everyone in her city, everyone that was there, everyone that could hear him knows she's no longer impure. But she has been restored. In a few moments, at the end of this message, I'm going I'm to call for, for, for any of you that have never really trusted in Christ. I'm going to call for you to believe. and I'm going to call for you to step out and go to the back and talk with me if you've come to faith in Christ. not doing that because I want to embarrass you I'm not doing that because I think it's something that makes us look good I'm doing that because like Christ wanted to defend and restore this woman I want to see you restored in the life of the church I want to see you see, see God's grace through his people wrapping up around you so that you can stand and feel his presence through his people no longer walking in secrecy, no longer walking in silence, but stepping out and saying what's scary so that you can know that he's for you and that you can hear him restore you. It's not now, it's in a moment, but I want you prepared. I want you ready. This is what his power does is it cleanses us and it heals us. It makes us whole. But let's not forget, Jesus wasn't going to heal this woman. He's on the way to heal Jairus' daughter. Can you imagine what Jairus is thinking as he's watching this go on? Can you feel the desperation building? Can you feel the tension filling him? Can you feel the anxiety? What are you doing? I don't know that he was bold enough to say anything. Luke doesn't record it for us. What's going on in his heart and in his mind? Let's see what happens with J. Iris and his daughter. We'll begin reading in verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. That's a confession that these people see a limit to Jesus' power. He doesn't need to come now. Let him go on his way. Your daughter is dead. There's nothing that can be done. I love Jesus' answer. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him. Verse 50. Jesus, hearing this, answered him. Do not fear. Only believe. And she will be well. Do not fear losing your daughter. Do not fear death. Do not fear the power that is oppressing you. Do not fear these things. Believe me. Trust me. Trust. And she will be well. And when he came to the house, verse 51, When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child, and all were weeping and mourning for her. Professional mourners had shown up. That's the, that, that they get paid to do that. Like, it was a service they provided for the family. They would weep and they'd well, <laughs> they, would, they would tear it up. They'd make sure everybody knew that this girl was dead. But he said, verse 51 and 52, he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. That's not the response we're going to encourage today. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. They knew it. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once and he directed them, directed that something should be given to her to eat, and her parents were amazed. Wouldn't you be? Wouldn't you be? I mean, your dead child is laying there, and Jesus walks in and grabs her by the hand and says, "Child, arise!" And she wakes up. Wouldn't that? I mean that's just the start? Amazement. Oh my gosh, what just happened? She's alive. Their parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. You know, this is a reality. I'm learning this as we've worked through these four episodes, these four, four moments where Jesus is greater than disaster. He's greater than demons. He's greater than disease, and he is greater than death. I am, I'm beginning to learn that the reason Luke highlights fear And the reason that people feared Christ is not because he's fearsome, unless you're rebelling against him. But he calls us to fear him. Because when we fear him most, we fear everything else less. Everything else loses power over us when we realize the power of Christ is for us and not against us. And that's why Paul writes... If he is for us, who can be against us? Who can condemn us? Who can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? No one. Nothing. Nothing. When we fear God most, we can fear everything else less. There's nothing in this world to fear when we fear God most. Because when we fear God most, we understand that his power is also most trustworthy. It's also the thing that we can believe in and trust and and rest in the most and and it eats away our despair and it overcomes our, our, uh, our, our powerlessness and our anxiety and our worry and our control because He is greater. There is no disaster that He is not more powerful than. There is no demon that He does not command. There is no disease that He cannot heal and there is no death that he can't give life back to. You see brothers and sisters the reason we fear him most is because in fearing him most we fear everything else less. See Jesus the man who demands faith is the God who defeats death. And these parents when they saw the unimaginable when when, when they saw it happen, they were amazed. And I don't know why he says it. I don't know what his motive was here. So there's a lot of different, there's a lot of conjecture. There's a lot of people that talk about it. Some would say, oh, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. And, and yeah, there, there's a fulfillment there. But, but, but some would say that his motive is, is, hey, we don't want too many crowds. We got enough people following me around and we don't want too many crowds. And some people would say, well, he told them that so that they could... So that they could enjoy her life. The truth is, the word was going to spread. And they were amazed. And they held and hugged their daughter and they fed her. How are you going to respond to witnessing the power of Jesus? In the face of desperation, how will you Respond. I think Jesus' words to Jairus are important for us to hear. Do not fear. Just believe. Trust him. Believe him. And so that falls really two ways for each of us. We can trust him initially. Because the reality is, even in a room like this, in 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 a room in a small church with With not just full hundreds and hundreds of people, even in a room like this, there are likely people who have never truly trusted Christ. Never initially trusted him. But he is the God who rules over all of these things. He is the God who has power over all of these things. He is the God who created all things. And created all things in harmony. He created everything as he intended it to be. All things working together and working in harmony. And there was peace. And he created the man and, he, and he, he molded him out of the dust. And he bent over and he breathed life into the man. And the man was given life where life wasn't. Life existed all of a sudden. He gives him life. And he says it's not good for the man to be alone. So he creates a woman. He takes a rib out of the man. creates a woman. and He puts them together. And the, and the scriptures tell us that he created them in his image. Male and female. He created them in his image. And they are equal. We are equal before God. And, and we lived um, with him in harmony and in peace. Until we rebelled against him. And when we rebelled, evil... Disease, disaster, demons, and death became our lot. You see, our sin, we are responsible for the desperation that we exist in every day. God created us in harmony, and now we live in desperation because we are sinners. But God, he wasn't done. He didn't abandon us. He loved his creation. He loved his people. It says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He redeems people unto himself. He forgives us of sin. He cleanses us of impurity. He provides us security in the midst of difficulty. And there's a day coming. When all of these things, when all of these things will be put away and desperation will be no more. Disease and death will never exist again. And he just says, believe. It's not a perfect faith he's looking for. It's not a strong faith he's looking for. It's not an, a, a, a fully informed faith he's looking for. He's, he, he's willing to take any faith. I mean, the, the faith of this woman, the faith of Jairus, they were selfish I don't want to lose my daughter. I'm tired of bleeding. They, they pushed past social, uh, social expectation and social standards. They were desperately believing. They didn't know who Jesus was fully. They didn't have a seminary education that made them ready to believe. Whether it's weak faith or, or desperate faith or selfish faith, bring it and place it in a powerful Savior. Bring your weak and imperfect and and, and incomplete faith and place it in your Savior. Trust in him and he redeems and he restores. And he puts rest in the place of desperation. And there's a day coming when what we experience in the Spirit will be made real in the flesh. And we will stand in his presence and we will see him with our eyes. And we will walk with him along a beach. And we will touch him with our hands. And this man who is God, will be in his, we will be in his presence forever along with his Father and the Holy Spirit. Believe in him. If you've trusted initially, let me implore you, let me plead with you to trust increasingly. Because the reality is in this room, not only are there people who have never trusted their are people who have never trusted completely. In fact, I'm, I think I can say there's nobody in this room that has trusted completely. And that's why we still feel despair. And that's why we still feel frustration. And that's why we still feel anger when things don't go our way. And that's why we still feel powerless when we face things that we can't control. Well, let me encourage you. The reason those things are happening are so that you can learn to trust him more fully. Imagine if Jesus had answered that guy who came to him and said, don't bother The teacher, nothing can be done. Imagine if he said, well, since you don't believe, I'm not going to go. Imagine if he had shown up before the girl had died. They wouldn't be able to trust him in life and death. Just physical ailment. There's nothing that he allows happen to us. His children, sons. And daughters of the king. There's nothing he allows to happen to us that he doesn't use that we might trust him more completely. So please trust him increasingly. In the face of disaster, he calms storms and he restores peace. He commands demons and undoes their evil to restore his image, even in the most depraved of people. He conquers disease and he cleanses impurity. He defeats death. So that now as the scriptures read, even if we die, we shall live. Trust him now. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you meet us in the midst of our deepest, darkest days. Thank you that when we come to the end of ourselves, we see that you are greater. You are more powerful. Thank you for the work that you have done. The hope that we have. The promise that you have made. Thank you. Father, I ask now, by your spirit, would you revive any soul in this room that has not trusted you? Initially, any person in this room that has has followed a religious religious, uh, process and trusted in their own works and their own goodness and the strength of their own faith and what they've done in their life, that they're just good enough, would you revive their soul? Make them alive and able to see the truth that they might trust you initially. For the rest of us, would you help us trust you increasingly? Would you help us to trust you more today than we did yesterday? And will you help us to trust you more tomorrow than we do today? Growing ever closer, drawing closer to you, seeing you more powerful and greater, and seeing you more uh, more, more more filling and, and more satisfying. Would you help us trust you? I ask these things by the authority of your son, Jesus, and in the power of the spirit, I ask these things. Amen.